welcome to our podcast. Not prod. I can't. It's a pod. I think I, think I need to teach language with knowledge right about now. Let's try that one again. Hello, SL peeps. Welcome to True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. Okay, can start confessing now. This is so cheesy. <laughs> What up, Sarah Bevier? Well, I'm glad you said my last name, Lisa Kathman, because this podcast is a little bit different because it might not be our audience and they have no idea who we are. Oh, yeah. I need to... Wait, I'm going to go into my professional mode. Yes, do your good voice. Do I sound like a newscaster? Normally, we start every podcast with, hi, Sarah. Hi, Lisa. But for those of you who have no idea who we are, we do have a regular podcast that we do... Well, let's be real clear. We try to do twice a month. I think we got one out for September because of, you know, life. But we do a podcast um, called True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah. So that's one of the things we do. And I love that podcast because it's truly confessions. Each episode, we talk about something that either we've done or we get one of our guests to confess something they've done. And then we just have conversations about it. Truth. Yeah. So this one's going to be a little bit different because... You have the opportunity to earn CEUs. For listening to this one, we feel like we should probably step it up a bit. I promise to swear less. Well, because our regular podcast, we literally just go in with a wing and a prayer. Oh, yeah. No script. (laughs) No script. No, it's a conversation. So it's not not meant to be scripted because... It's not edited. And sometimes... Crap happens. Yeah, sometimes we say ridiculous things. I had to pause before I said crap because (laughs) included in our other podcast, sometimes some swearing happens. Right. Nothing really offensive. No, not this time. This time we're going to be like, have our professional hats on. It'll still sound more like a conversation because, again, that's just kind of what we do. Um, But we we do have a topic and we have some things that we definitely want to share as we talk about data collection. So before we get into this episode, I did want to introduce ourselves. We already said our names. I'm Sarah. I'm Lisa. And not only are we the hosts of this podcast, we also are the co-creators of SLP Toolkit, which is a web-based application that Lisa and I developed um, a few years ago as really a solution to the problems we faced working as school-based SLPs trying to manage paperwork. And what it really came down to for us was the data and assessment piece and making sure that we had enough information to be able to confidently write treatment plans as well as progress monitor. And so data is actually our favorite thing in the world to talk (laughs) about and what we want to share a little bit about with um, you all today. Do you want to do the really fun stuff? Yeah, I love the housekeeping. It's always my favorite part. Okay, so because this is being offered for ASHA CEUs, we want to go over some of the course specifics like disclosures. So Sarah already mentioned that we are co-founders of SLP Toolkit, and we do receive compensation for its sale. We don't really have any non-financial disclosures uh, related to the content of this course, but the content disclosure we wanted to share is that um, when we are talking about different ways to store data digitally, we will be exclusively focusing on our software, the SLP Toolkit application, and we won't include any information about similar or related apps. And then what we're hoping um, through our conversation today that you'll get out of this is by the end of it, kind of um, recognizing some of those common pitfalls we all have when we're taking data and how to sort of shift that from just just 
taking data and making it more meaningful. We also want to talk about uh, using different data sources and how um, when you reflect on these uh, types of data, how that just overall increases the quality of your treatment as a result. And then we'll also be getting into SLP Toolkit as a form of digital data collection and how that looks if you've never tried that before or if you have, what might be different from what you're currently doing. Okay. Let's do this. Let's do this. So obviously, we need to start out by talking about um, data. And uh, it's one of those things, you either like it or you don't. I think there are people who have got more of that like scientific mathematical brain who probably really appreciate and love data. I was not that girl. Um, For most of my um, schooling in grad school, as well as my early years, um, I took data because somebody told me I had to. Did you even really understand what data was, though? I think that's what's hard. I don't think I had respect for it. I knew I had to take numbers and stuff and write words down. Right. I knew that was a part of a soap note. I knew that I needed it for Medicaid, but I didn't really make that connection of overall. I understood that the point of it was to have some numbers so that I can look and see whether or not progress is being made. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that part I think I understood, but at the same time, I can tell you I wasn't doing it correctly, and we're going to get into some of those factors that impact that plus and minus, um, and so I, I can honestly tell you, I think back to some of the reporting that I did, well, a couple of things happened. One, sometimes it was like darts to a dartboard because mm-hmm. I didn't have enough information, but then other times, um, I don't know how accurate the data I was reporting on actually was. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I think the other big thing and why I say I had no respect for it, I never valued what it was really doing for me. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, and it's really unfortunate. I wish I would have figured it out a little bit sooner. But data is one of those things we do it in grad school. And I know there is some instruction on how, but... I don't feel like it was ever explained to me in a way that that clicked. Gave you the buy-in. Yeah, exactly. We talk so much about mindset shift and everything, you know, that that we kind of talk about um, related to our areas of interest. And it all kind of revolves around that idea of I needed to have that shift in the way I thought about data to really respect it and appreciate it. I like how you keep emphasizing the sound and shift. Especially when... Because it's a podcast? Yes. Yeah. That's exactly right. So anyway, why is data collection so challenging? Um, I think even for very seasoned SLPs, this is something that's really hard to do, um, mostly because, especially those of us working in the schools, we are typically seeing groups of students who have multiple goals. And there is a lot of juggling that is happening because not only are we trying to gather this information, but we're also trying to do therapy and maintain student engagement. So it's a lot to balance. Um, I think um, the other problem is knowing what kinds of data we should be taking. So again, um, taking accuracy data, meaning you have a percentage at the end of it and you're collecting pluses and minuses. I think that's what most of us use It is not the only kind of data that we should be taking, nor is it always the most helpful or relevant. And so, you know, I've always, we talk a lot about when, with progress monitoring, we're also jealous of teachers because the the goal of data is to know whether or not a student is learning the material, Mm -hmm. right? And so a teacher teaches a new subject area or or content area and then has a quiz or a test at the end. First of all, they they have a curriculum that they don't even have to come up with said test or quiz. Right. They can focus on the instruction. I think that's That's where we get so kind of um, 
like where the difficulty comes in for SLPs is we don't have a curriculum. We don't have the pre and post test. We're kind of coming up with everything on our own. Right. Kind of amazing. We are kind of brilliant. (laughs) No, but it's it's why it's such a daunting task. There is a lot going on. And I think it's just a lot of things are up in the air and you're trying to manage it all. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, then what will happen a lot of the times is data does kind of get maybe put aside. Mm -hmm. Again, you'll put down just enough to get away with whatever Medicaid requires or your district requires. um, But you're probably not doing it because you have buy-in right. on what it's going to do for you and your therapy sessions. And so, um, you know, what I think we've got to remember, though, more than anything, is we cannot operate on assumptions. We live in a data-driven um, or a litigious society mm-hmm. where data-driven decisions are crucially important. You know, we kind of joke a little bit about how we have 99 problems, but a lawsuit isn't one. Um, <laughs> or but, if it is, we feel good about it. Right. Like, we're not nervous that somebody's going to be looking at chicken scratch right. on a paper. And I can say that now. Now I wouldn't be worried that I didn't have information to feel confident um, with the decisions I had made. But there were plenty of years where I just got really lucky, I think, you know, that I never got forced into a situation where I had to actually show my data. Well, we talk about this a lot, but there, I, what, I did sit in a meeting once with advocates and um, a whole team of, of people, and they were going around the table and had very, very hard questions, and they got to the resource teacher who was, who was to my left, so I would have been next, and they said, I want you to show me your data. <laughs> show it to me. I want to know exactly where you're coming up with the, this information from. And she pulled out a binder that had every single piece of data that she needed to be able to to explain why she picked the goals that she did and why the student was making rodeo. the progress. No, it's brilliant, right? And all I did the entire time was sweat <laughs> and pray. They didn't ask me the same thing because what they were going to see was maybe some sticky notes or, um, you know, re- just pieces of paper that had some uh, chicken scratches on it that makes no sense to anybody but me. And so I actually got really lucky. Um, Speech and language wasn't kind of the area that they had the most concerned about. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have to do that proof. At that point. But don't you always feel like there's always, usually the trends in these kind of meetings that I see is one year the focus is on resource. And then when they feel kind of okay with that, then they start going into either the gen ed teacher or the related service providers or whatever. So it's coming your way. A hundred percent. And that was my big moment of, I thought I never want to do this again. I never want to feel this way again. I want to walk into a meeting super confident that I do have information that um, shows why I picked the goals that I picked and that I've got you know enough data to confidently report on that student's strengths and mm-hmm. needs. And so that was kind of a light bulb moment for me. It was part of my shift. Um, but you know, before we even talk about um, the different types of data, the other thing I wanted to, to say is that without data, there is no way to determine current levels of performance outcomes on goals, or efficacy of treatment. And I think those are the kind of the three things that really I needed to figure out um, why we need data. Mm -hmm. And so it's this kind of three different components. I need data to be able to write that, that present level section in an IEP. I need to talk about all of those students' strengths and needs in the areas of communication um, and other areas, too. I might address um, academics and and motor and things like that as well if I'm the case manager. Um, But the the key for the communication part is I can't go in there and just give a bunch of subjective details like Johnny is a nice boy and he comes to each session with with willingness to participate, (laughs) which I used to write on. 
pretty much every week. <laughs> that was your intro sentence. That was my intro every single time. Johnny comes bi-weekly. Uh, no. And so you have to have data to be able to confidently say what those strengths and needs are. Right? So that's one thing. I've got to have a way to gather that data to report. Then I need to have data to show whether or not that student is making progress on goals. So that's going to be the data that we are either taking um, during our data sessions or um, for progress monitoring, which we'll we'll talk more about in, in a little bit. And then that last piece is efficacy of treatment. So is what I'm doing working? What is it that I need to shift and change? And that's the piece I think I always kind of ignored. Right. I didn't use data to guide my treatment. Well, I think you already said it too. Like you did it because you had to. You know it's a component of being an SLP no matter what setting you're in. But the way you use it, I don't think is always or should use it is always appreciated. That's exactly right. I know. And, it, you know, I do a question then, how was I actually able to be a decent therapist? I think a lot of us, um, it's very intuitive. I think we have some really great natural skills. Um, I think with experience, we're able to kind of make those those decisions on the fly in the moment without maybe planning and data. Um, but it really, like, I think you've given this analogy before. You know, an architect is never going to build a house without a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's that same thing of I, I got away with it. I really do think I helped make a difference for students that I was working on. But it could have looked very different if I had actually collected the right kinds of data and then used it. And so that's what I think you're going to talk a little bit about is different types of data. Yeah, I mean, I think it's super important. You already sort of referenced the idea that a lot of us are super comfortable with the quantitative piece. And that's our numbers. That's what usually fits on our paper data sheets, those pluses and minuses, or I always used to have some pluses with circles around them, which was my indication that they got it right, but they needed a little help from me. And so I think the reason we like this ties back into what you we're talking about what's so hard about data collection that when you have a group of students and everybody has different goals and um, the quantitative piece tends to be easier because that's a very um, objective kind of data to collect you are uh, able to listen to a student and there is a right or a wrong answer you can record that if another SLP was listening to that same student they would um, be able to record the same information so that's easier that makes sense and it makes sense for like again these large caseloads and large group sizes and addressing all of these goals but we really have to think about data for purposes of driving treatment and, you know, well, all of these things. We already talked about driving treatment, making treatment plans, reporting on progress. We have to have a variety of data from a variety of sources. And I still, um, I use this quote a lot and it's not going to be quoted word for word, but I loved when I talked to this one special ed director that we used to work with that was talking about just the shift in special education in general, that we have parents that are coming in that are more savvy of their rights. They're more involved in those meetings. Um, Special education is not this stigma like it may have been 20, 30 years ago. People are seeking these services. They are getting advocates and attorneys to ensure that their kids are getting the most supports that they can get. And so there's just been this change in how this has all happened. And so with um, part of that change is when you're looking at treatment plans, when you're looking at progress on goals, people are expecting to walk into a meeting and look at all of the data and come to the same conclusions 
as a team based on the same set of data. So if you only have pluses and minuses on your data sheet, or I even think of, man, back in the day, some of my, uh, we had to do, I've had to do Medicaid billing forever. If we, I know we have some listeners out there that are like, Medicaid, what's that? Or I don't have to do that. And don't ever say that out loud to somebody that has had to do that. <laughs> That's like saying you have a caseload of 40, <laughs> which again, I'm sure there are people out there that have a caseload of 40. We right. live in Arizona, which I think is funded maybe 48th or 49th in the entire nation mm. for per pupil frame. spending. Yeah. And so what that translates into is super high caseloads. We are a Medicaid billing state, so you have to bill for every single one of those students, whether they they're eligible or not. Them. So it's kind of a nightmare. But that whole um, explanation was because we were required to have use these standard paper data sheets in our district. And you'd have to record, you know, of course, things like time and was it a group or individual session? And then there were these little boxes you could circle where it was like, are they making expected progress? And then there was this little tiny strip that you could write everything else (laughs) that was important. So sometimes it was really awesome. I had some pluses and minuses in there and I felt really good about myself. (laughs) Sometimes it would just say something like chipper chat, (laughs) (laughs) which was real useful for driving my treatment. So you see where I'm going? here that if I were in one of these meetings or even not even let's take out the lawyers and the advocates if a parent came in and wanted to know how their student was doing and all I have to look at is chipper chat (laughs) I might be looking for a new job you know I'm laughing (laughs) because I did it too I understand everybody does this but I think this is where once I got a better system in place and once I started to respect the data which I know you've said a million times it did start to matter to me and changed my practice. And I actually found out it didn't really require more of me. It actually made my life easier in the long run. And we'll get to that when we talk more about, you know, reflection on data. But, you know, we're really good, I think, at that quantitative piece because um, it's so precise. And one SLP can do it the same as another. But that's not the only kind of data. And we also can, can and should be taking qualitative data. And so the idea of qualitative data is that it's that subjective kind of data. And it kind of requires an open mind because you're the one who's describing the behavior and analyzing that behavior through your own lens. So it's not just like a if you have a kid that has a goal for present progressive and the kid said he ran or something like that, I would mark that as a, a minus sign in my data for quantitative, but I might also be making notes on if I gave him a verbal model, he is running, and then the kid was able to repair it, I would write maybe out that uh, cue repaired with a verbal cue. So that's an, one example of qualitative data that I'm looking at the behavior and saying, oh, he did repair, I did give him a verbal cue, that would be one type of quanti- qualitative data. And um, again, you kind of have to have an open mind when you're looking at qualitative data because you are describing that through your own lens and it's subjective. So um, it's a direct reflection of the person who is writing that kind of data down and interpreting what they're seeing and what they're understanding. And so sometimes this can be the best kind of data you take. 
It can't be the only kind of data, but it should be definitely included in your repertoire of what you're collecting. So if you even think of something like a social skills goal, um, you might need to go into the classroom or in the playground and get some sort of observation data of how they're performing in those settings. So that would be qualitative data. You're looking at how the, the student is using that skill in a context. If you're assigning numbers to it, that's your quantitative piece. But um, you might want to also look at how a student is carrying information outside of your speech room. So that kind of information, that's all qualitative data, setting, how they're using it, what factors are impacting those numbers, that's your qualitative um, piece. Um, you might be doing things like interviewing the student or the parent or the teacher, and that's all qualitative information. You're not getting numbers out of that, but it's all information that drives your treatment. Um, I also think of student engagement as a huge piece of qualitative data. These are, you know, sometimes I get kind of sad sometimes, and I totally understand why this happens, but I've seen posts in some of the Facebook groups where it's like, you know, the kid just wants to come in and talk about their day, and I can't get any of my work done because, you know, they just spin out on, on their day. And I do get that, you know, you have to kind of corral them. And sometimes, especially the younger kids, it's like herding cats sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, you that kind of information is important because it's building rapport and it's um, finding out about that student. And this is all information that you can use if they are sharing something like they love dinosaurs and all they talk about is dinosaurs, then that's information that can then be connected into, hey, maybe I can create some of their um, activities around dinosaurs because I know that will increase interest and therefore engagement and I can get more out of the session. So that's not something you would ever get from pluses and minuses, but right. it's super, super, super important. Absolutely. Um, or even like stuff like maybe I took data this time, quantitative data that was 80%. And then the next week they come in and it's 20% on the same skill. And I have no clue why if it's just numbers. But if I wrote something down like, oh, I found out that you know, maybe it's high school and it was a girl and she broke up with her boyfriend or it's a, a, a guy who's in a best or in a fight with his best friend or just got cut from the football team or whatever. All of those emotional kinds of things can impact performance. So if you write down that as your qualitative data piece, then it helps you interpret that quantitative data. Well, and I think that's the key is, uh, again, if so many of us, all we ever do is a plus and a minus and then get a percentage at the end, it, that really doesn't tell us much at all. No. And I think of a good case, it's like something like articulation. If the, the goal is that the student will produce our, even at, the, let's say, like the sentence level, mm -hmm. and I have data that says 60%. What does that mean? Did they produce it at the sentence level in all positions of a word? Or was it only pre-vocalic that was correct? Exactly. Like, I need to know more information than just 60%. Right. And so I think, you know, and then level of support is really important. You know, we talk about, especially in the early days, if this is a, brand, a student that's brand new working on R, we're not at the sentence level right away. We're probably at just in isolation. Right. And so, and there's going to be levels of support. And so you need to be writing that down. What's it taking? Is there, does this show any signs of self-awareness or is you, are you constantly having to remind him, you know, for, to get his tongue in the right place or all of that is data. Well, and the reason for that too, it's to drive your treatment for the next session. So if I know that like that example you gave that it was 60%, um, at the sentence level, and all of them were correct for pre-vocalic, I may not use that uh, pre-vocalic sound anymore. I might want to focus some energy just on vocalic R, 
Or I might be looking at ways of, okay, they're successful in this context. Is there any kind of contextual, or what do you call that? I'm totally blanking, where you're bridging what they can do. Co-articulation. Co-articulation. So I might come up with specific targets for the next session that capitalize on that ability to do the pre-vocalic R and um, hope that it can carry over into vocalic. So all of that, again, that's your qualitative data that's super, super important. The other thing that I think is really important is to make sure that you're writing down not just the cues, um, but also any specific strategies that are working. So cues could be things like, um, we kind of touched on verbal or tactile or visual cues, like that kind of stuff is important. Um, Maybe you have students that are doing really well if you repeat directions or instructions. Um, You might have students that need chunking of information to be successful. So all of that kind of information is really important. Or there might be certain materials that you're using. Like in articulation, I might be using a mirror or a tongue depressor or something that I want to note what is working and what is not working so I can focus on the things that are working and not pull out. Like if I know um, that a verbal cue is never working for a student, but I know the visual cues are, then the next session, I don't want to use verbal cues. I just want to go straight in for the visual cues. So that's important. Um, Or not just materials from like a tangible, like tongue depressor, you know, that kind of material. I think of some of those programs that I've used, like thinking maps or um, the EET. Mm -hmm. If those are strategies that work for that student and I can see a a shift in the numbers based on using these consistently, then that would be stuff that I would definitely want to um, note. Yes. It's also important, I think, again, because um, the, the key here is to continue to make progress. And so if I don't have the information from the last time, I mean, I literally could have seen the student yesterday and I will already have forgotten by oh, the, the next the day. next The last hour right. I would have forgotten. And so, again, it's, I think, some clarification on the difference between documentation and data collection um, and the requirements of things like Medicaid and what they require. I know there is some debate about whether or not you have to have quantitative data every single session. And um, I would argue the point that qualitative data is data and that you don't have to have numbers every single session, but you do have to document. And it does have to be more information than we played Go Fish. And you can't have qualitative either time. I think the key for anything is you can't have, you shouldn't have quantitative every time, qualitative every time. You really um, have to use a variety of data, a variety of sources. And I even saw, I always go back to these Facebook threads because I see them sometimes and I'm like, you know, yes, this makes sense. But other times, um, you know, I would talk to administration because the post that I was looking at, Um, Actually, I think it was in one of our groups where they were talking about rubrics, which is a form of progress monitoring tool. But what does that look like in your day-to-day session therapy? And for me, if I was using something like a rubric for maybe story retail, and that kind of rubric has different criteria that I'm looking at. So one might be the story organization. One might be grammar and um, syntax as they're doing their story retail one might be story grammar elements. So there are different things that are involved in that rubric. And so what I'm doing is collecting my day-to-day data to see where they're at on all of those characteristics. So maybe right now we are just working on story organization and I'm working specifically on the subskill of sequencing. So I can take quantitative data on that. How often are they doing that? 
Um, but I'm also taking other kinds of data as well that whatever I need that will move that student forward because that's the point. The whole point of this data is to, like you had said before, is what you're doing working? And if not, use that data to pivot and go into a direction that is. So um, it's really huge that when we're taking data that we're not just doing this on autopilot. Yes. We really are taking the time to reflect it. I think most SLPs are really actually pretty good about understanding that data collection is not an option. Even if some days we do a little better from group to group, sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. Oh yeah, we've all gotten to a a quarterly progress report and realized that we (laughs) forgot to take any data. Yeah, a goal. We forgot a goal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that kind of stuff happens. And I think, again, that's just the the real world and the reality of dealing with large caseloads and trying to just juggle it all. But um, I think we have a really good understanding of that data is required because of grad school and that that's drilled into us and the, the idea of soap notes that started in early on in my career. And I saw that when I worked in the school setting, that same level of training about data was not um, given to teachers, even special education teachers. I think they were really good about the big stakes kind of data. So understanding to do progress monitoring tests, or um, especially gen ed, they have the pre and post tests for a unit, but they're not taking data necessarily along the way that's specific to the student and driving instruction. So um, we have that good foundation, which is awesome. But best practice really is not to just focus on the collection, but also the reflection. And um, I think where this, why this is so hard, though, too, is we have a lot of requirements on us for the collection piece, but really the only one who can make you reflect on it is you. And um, we want to make sure that when we're thinking about data reflection, we're looking at the student, where they're at in this moment in time. So that's more about um, when you're working on a new goal, even you might have a goal going back to that R, maybe your annual goal is for conversation. But if I just take data on the annual goal, that's not going to give me any information about where we're at right now to move them towards that. So I will definitely want to find out where they're at right now, what can get them moving on that hierarchy towards conversation. But on the flip side, too, I can't always stay so focused on where they are now. I do need to zoom out every now and then for purposes of, well, twofold. I will need that information for my progress report because we have to match our data on the progress report for how the goal is written. So I can't put something like if the goal is written for our 90% in conversation, I can't put, oh, they're at the word level for at 20%. I might make a note of that, but really I would have to say if they're still 0% in conversation, that's where I have to write that. But also I always like to zoom out um, because sometimes we get so hyper-focused on where they are now, we don't see how they're putting it together. And we can either overestimate or underestimate a student. So there are some students where you'll tell yourself, oh, they can't do that. I know they can't. But then you actually check it and they can. And then on the flip side, too, sometimes we assume that they can do something like, oh, we've worked so much on the sequencing and the story grammar. And I I know that they can like do this a little bit. And then you see, oh, wow. Whoa. They're not putting it together. We got some work to do. Right. So definitely that reflection piece, you know, it, it makes sense. You know, if you have bad data or insufficient data, you're going to make bad decisions. And it's not because you're a bad therapist. It's just because you need that that data as your friend. And it's there to support you. Right. And it's there to make you look like a rock star. And it goes back into what you were talking about, that confidence. 
that if I have the data, I can confidently back my clinical decision making, whether I'm doing it just for myself in my lesson planning, or I'm doing it in front of an audience in an IEP meeting, I just feel confident about that. And it's not meant to add time to a workload. I think that's always the other thing like, oh my gosh, I have so many kids like this is going to take me so much time to like reflect, you know, like it's not another step. It's really if you are kind of doing it in the moment, you're taking, you're thinking about the variety of, of data pieces, then in that moment, you could, you could automatically say, okay, I've noticed this session, it's pre vocalic he's got, he doesn't have the vocalic. So I'm going to make a quick note, which is qualitative data to say, next time, focus on this. And so it saves you because what I would tend to do is not take sufficient data, the next week would come, they'd walk in the door, we'd be about 10 minutes into a 30 minute session. And I'd be like, huh, oh yeah, I remember last week, I really thought to myself that this was super ineffective. And yet, look, I've spent a third of the session trying to remember that instead of if I would have just written it down, right. just a couple words, small sentence, nothing major, it doesn't have to be a super big paragraph, but that reflection saves you from spinning your wheels. It actually makes you a more effective therapist. And you know, for the kids too, like I've had kids walk in and they're just like, why are we doing this again? Or something, right. you know, like if that happens, that is the reality of well, data collection. And I think of something like, you know, we've given examples about grammar and articulation, but even like something like following directions, mm-hmm. you know, if all I know is that they got four out of five or, you know, two out of five correct at the end of whatever two step directions I asked them to do, um, but I don't actually take any time to reflect on why did they miss the other three because maybe I'm not seeing that there's a common, um, concept right that they're really really struggling with so the ones that they're always getting correct are, i don't want to spend my time there anymore right and and so it's like oh it's not that they can't follow a two-step direction they are consistently confused by one of those concepts so that's really important information well i think one of the things we um, didn't really touch upon too when we're talking about types of data and variety of data sources is that we also need to be thinking about language sampling And that is an example of qualitative data as well. And I don't mean language sampling like we do for purposes of evaluation, but I mean that if like you have a kid, sometimes I think of those kids with, they will, uh, they have a goal, like they will generate a three to five word sentence with intact semantics and syntax. So it's a goal that they can, um, you definitely want them to work on. You could get some great, um, information from pluses and minuses and know, hey, maybe they're doing it with 60% accuracy. But unless you jot down a couple of their sentences, you can't really get to the meat of why, where exactly their difficulty is. So I think of like that kind of kid that has, um, maybe you're doing a little language sample and they're doing a lot of personal narratives. And so they're making a lot of I statements like I like ice cream, I go to the store, I this, I that. And you see that they're kind of falling apart in that because they're maybe more excited about talking about themselves, but with within a uh, a contextualized activity, like where they're looking at um, a picture scene or something, they are able to do it. That's powerful information too. So you get to really analyze when you take these snippets of language samples. So again, not a, I'm transcribing. Using salt. Right, 20 minutes of, (laughs) and analyzing word from word and getting a type token ratio and using a software like salt. I don't mean that. I just mean writing down some of their sentences in real time, like taking, maybe pulling like five that are important in a session that you can then go and analyze and reflect on and drive your treatment for future 
sessions. Yeah, it's really good. Um, okay, so another thing that I want to talk about, which makes data collection a literal nightmare, <laughs> is a poorly written goal. Oh, for sure. It is impossible to take accurate, quality data on a goal that's confusing and unclear. So um, I am probably the first to throw myself under the bus when it comes to goal writing. Again, I feel like it's not anything that I was like taught in a way where it clicked for me. Um, Obviously, I knew I had to write goals. And I remember practicing writing goals um, during graduate school. Obviously, like when I was in the clinics and stuff, we had to write our own goals for the um, patients we were working with. But it just was something I always really, really struggled with. Um, And I think I knew what I wanted to target. Mm -hmm. It was writing that down in a way that anybody who picked that goal up would know exactly what it was I wanted to target. Well, SLPs are real wordy, too. I think that was it. And we're so close to what we're doing with the students that it just gets to be a nightmare when you're reading some goals. I've written some doozies. I've read some doozies. yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, a couple of the things, you know, there's some real challenges with those goals that are confusing for a lot of reasons. But um, first and foremost is trying to take data on a um, what we like to refer to as a mega goal is something that is nearly impossible. Um, we have all done it. We've, we joke a lot about this um, wonderful gold bank that we had access to in our previous district. And they had um, the goals written out where it would be a grammar goal. And in parentheses, you know, it, it would say the student will. And then in parentheses, it would list every gramma- possible grammatical structure you may target. Past tense, future tense, present ing Possessive, was pronouns, right yeah, everything everything a list of about 30 the point was you were supposed to go in and pick the one objective or targets um i can't even think right now the, one skill right. you wanted to target but what would happen is nobody would go delete them all so the goal would read something like johnny will produce you know be able to produce past tense ed pronouns possess like six Third, grammatical yeah. structures some people would take it down to maybe like three but even that i would argue those are three separate those goals are three separate goals and yes can i take data on that like do i understand what it is that that student's supposed to be doing so that i can collect data yes but it's just going to be very um difficult to take that kind of data on one goal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every state is different, but I know ours really came down hard on those mega goals, that there needs to be one skill that you are targeting in each goal. And so articulation is another one where you see that, like, running list of all of the sounds that the student needs to produce all in one goal or that, you know, they need to do it at this, you know, sentence level in all positions of a word. And those kinds of goals take a really long time to collect data on. Well, and I think where if you even tease it out into what we were saying before about quantitative data, that we should be able to look at it and take it the same, then when I'm looking at a goal like that, I don't know how you did it. So if I have a goal, even like with all those sounds jammed in, like maybe it's a the student will produce L, TH voice, TH voiceless, S and R with 95% accuracy. So when I go to report on that, am I teasing out every sound? Is it in every word position? Is Do I do an average of all of those sounds? Which right. that's really not going to do much as a parent. If I just saw 25% because right. they could have 100% with L, 0% for R, 30% for TH. So if it doesn't If you don't think somebody could pick up your goal and know exactly how to replicate it, how to target it in therapy, how to measure it, 
which sometimes I do that to myself too. I've written goals where I'm like, oh, how would I measure this? And it would, that was kind of my first clue of, oh, I might need to rework this because there has to be a way to measure this that makes sense to anybody reading it. Yeah. And and there are ways, you know, we talk a lot about um, developing goals that give you a lot of bang for your buck. And so I know you gave an example of narratives earlier. Um, We know working on narratives is a really important skill for students, but it's also a great way to target probably a lot of difficulties they are having with, you know, that ability to sequence and organize their thoughts, um, use specific vocabulary. And in their grammar, you know, you can target grammar in a narrative goal. So there's a lot you can do there. But writing something like the student will be able to um, relay a personal narrative is just one skill that I can take that data on, but I'm able to target so many, so things. many things. Right. Yeah. And I think that's why all speech language pathologists love the describing goals. You know, like the student will be able to name five out of seven detail types. Right. Because we can work on categorization and parts of a whole and function. And you can and, quantify it. And you can quantify it. because Versus a student will improve vocabulary. Okay, what does that mean? Exactly. And so I think the key is, is it took us developing the goal-based that's in or the goal feature that's in SLP toolkit it actually took us um, the way we broke it down was we didn't want just a list of goals because every goals need to be specific and individualized so but we wanted like a um, what am I trying to say like a formula yeah it to want, help you really be able to write a smart goal I think everything we have in toolkit is for scaffolding thinking it's yes, not replacing you exactly it's it's helping scaffold what you know and giving you the support you need to be able to do that for every student on your caseload. Yes. So it was when we did that, that, um, so it says student will, and then the first drop down is a list of skills in a content area. So we, we have a goal bank that's all about, um, uh, semantics. So you go to the semantics goal bank, that first drop down is a list of any possible target area in semantics, but it's one skill. And so student will, and then compare and contrast, name a synonym, um, you know, categorize, I can't even think off the top of my head. I never, I'm really good on the spot like that. But the point is, is it's that one skill. It took me using that formula to really understand that concept of, I don't need to write this big, long, the student will improve their um, vocabulary by being able to. No, no, no. The student will want. And what's that one skill that it is that I'm going to target? It helps you too. Mm-hmm. I think like we think we're we're using more words and it makes us look better and smarter and that we're doing more for the student. But, you know, you're really not because it kind of trips you up. I've written goals before where I'm like, what the heck was it that I wanted to even <laughs> target there? What was I thinking? It seemed real good right. at the moment. So I know even like we always joke about phone a friend. Run it by somebody else. You've got yeah. colleagues that you work with. And if you don't, if you're that, I know we have SLPs that you're like, I'm the only SLP that serves preschool through high school in my count, you know, my small county in this rural area, then use a Facebook group. You know, that those, I think that's a great place to throw something out. Like I'm trying to target this. What does this goal tell you? Does it make sense to you? And, you know. Would you know what I meant by it? Would you know how to treat it? Do you know what I mean by it? Would you know how to measure it? And if you're not getting yeses to all three of those, then you're going to have to rework that one. So the big key is, is to pick the one skill it is you want to target per goal. Um, Again, it needs to be specific and it needs to be observable. Mm -hmm. And so to do that, we have got to really be critical about those action words that we're using. Um, I can't, you know, come up with something that says the student will appreciate. Appreciate 
Um, I need to say things that the student will name, state, point, um, things that are an observable skill that I can see. Because again, that would be a, a really difficult goal to measure if I'm not using those really concrete action words. So that's an important part. The other thing that's really critical is to lift that level of support. It's okay to say that the student will do something independently with mm-hmm. no support. But, but I want to say know that. that. Right. I want to know. Mm-hmm. I got a lot of goals where that part was left out. And so I'm like, is that that they are expected to do it to do it independently? I wrote a lot of my goals as independent. I did too. Because I think you start to get tripped up if, if you start to add like they can with two cues. Well, then we forget that we wrote that. And then when we're taking data, you're marking them as a minus sign, even if you gave them cues because they're not doing the skill. If that makes, do you know what I'm trying no, to say? No, I know exactly what you're saying, but I also think it's a year's time. Yeah. Now, so you obviously, start with the maybe cues. with our students with those really complex right. communication needs, those um, supports are going to be really critical um, and we want success. So if having to use a cue for them to be successful in a year's that's time, a great point. then that's great. But make sure you say what it is and make sure it's really, um, again, understandable so that, you know, something like the student will get one verbal cue, the student will get a tactile Versus minimal cueing. Versus minimal support. I don't know what that means. Unless you defined it somewhere, I don't know what minimal support means. And you can. Like, I know there are people that have real fancy levels of support and charts, but scan that and attach it to the IEP. And it's not even just, like, I always think, like, maybe they move from my campus to another campus or to another district or to another state, that document would go with them. But even, you know, ultimately IEPs are written for the student and for their families to understand what the heck you're doing. So you don't want to write, you know, something that the families don't understand either or the teachers or anybody else on the team. Yeah. Uh, The next part about goal writing is, again, clearly defining the measurement that you're using. Really difficult to take data on a goal when um, you don't know how it is that you're supposed to be collecting that information. Mm -hmm. And so I actually remember a point when we didn't have to, like, specify that in the goal. Um, But it's probably because most of us were writing goals that said things like, you know, the student will be able to do something with 80% accuracy. Um, Again, Accuracy is not the only type of measurement. Opportunities tracked may be better. Um, sometimes I think it's important to track um, uh, instances of something versus an accuracy, mm-hmm. a percentage. Like frequency. Frequency. Like how Thank often you. do they how do often, something? Exactly. Um, yeah, because maybe I'm just trying to decrease a behavior. Um, so then accuracy is not going to be the right number. Um, so you need that criterion, but you also have to write down how are you going to measure it. And so um, sometimes we will say as measured by SLP data, and that's okay. That just shows that you're going to be taking data in some on some kind of a data collection sheet, and based on that information, that's what you're going to report on. But again, that's not the only way. Maybe you're going to be measuring that goal with a language sample. That's really appropriate, especially for students who are working at maybe articulation level at the, or articulation articulation at the conversation level or um, grammar. I think a, um, more so than just. accuracy, I think it's really great to use a language sample to measure Mm -hmm. the outcome of that goal. Um, Using something like a rubric or a rating scale may give you more information. Yeah, or like I think fluency goals, maybe student interview. Like there are so many ways it really should be tailored to what connects in for 
the best way to measure that goal for that student. And it might look different for Johnny than it does for Maria. And you need to take that into account and not uh, have every goal look the same. That's right. And identify that measurement in the goal. It has to be spelled out there because I'm going to tell you right now, if you said something to me like, um, Johnny will be able to maintain a topic with, uh, with 10 out of 15, on 10 out of 15, and don't tell me that you mean off of a rubric, then I'm going to think you meant 10 out of 15 opportunities. Mm -hmm. So you've got to be really clear there. Again, I cannot measure a goal um, consistently if I don't understand all of those things, what the objective observable skill is I'm targeting, what level of support I'm going to be using, and the measurement tool in which I'm going to gather that data. And so um, in our drop downs in that goal feature, that was the point of it is that we have the student will and then the list of um, skills, one single skill that you're going to target. And then it says when given with a drop down of possible types of support, scoring the, the criterion. So whether that's a percentage or an opportunities track or frequency, and then it says as measured by and a drop down of possible options for measuring that goal. And it just by the end of it, as you're walking through it again, it's very individualized to that student's need, but the formula allows me to write a specific measurable goal that I hope anybody will interpret the same right. way that I do. And that's going to be really impactful on that data. What about student engagement? Oh, student engagement. <laughs> I actually think that is the thing that probably um, is the most challenging part of data collection. Um, you know, if I was just to hand over a student a quiz and they take the quiz and give it back to me and then I had the data... Um, that would be super easy. But nope, instead, I need to um, build rapport and do therapy and keep them interested. And so how to do that while you're taking data is really, really challenging. I always think it's interesting. Some of the comments I see, I know we offer a digital data collection platform that you'll talk about in a minute, but um, that people think that the paper data is so much easier than digital data to do student engagement. And I don't see that. And I think that's because I have done both. I think it's more about some people get just real comfortable with the paper data, but I don't think the platform itself changes my ability to engage with my students. Well, I think that's the one thing, as I was going to say, is you'd have to have a system. Um, you've got to, to be really organized in um, how you are going to be administering or taking that data, um, or else it is really, really difficult to maintain student engagement um, if you're constantly switching up um, how it is you're taking data. When I was in the preschool, um, there was a point where I would just have like tape on my leg because mm-hmm. I'm like chasing kids around and I'm just like needed something constantly with me so that I could jot down that information. That worked for me. Um, and so then there's other times where I have these like really beautiful data sheets you know, that I'm taking data on. There's hundreds of data sheets out there and they're all very different because I think we all have personal preferences on um, what it is that we want to be able to jot down. Right, right. And so you picking something and sticking with it, I think, is really, really important. Um, I think I changed my data collection method every single year in those early days before I found something that worked for me consistently. Um, and so I think there is, I think paper's just comfortable to people. Um, I think that having that paper, you feel like you can maybe jot notes and maintain engagement with a student but you're really not I that's what I always that that's where I think it confuses me and I will say it's because I've given both a fair shot I don't know I think maybe if you would have told me before or asked me back in the day when 
you know, I can remember we had to do the Medicaid billing. I know that comes up a lot again. Um, but where I had, I would take my notes on a paper platform and then I'd have to transfer it into a Medicaid. And that doesn't make sense. Like to me, um, the digital data only makes sense if I am able to do it in real time. I don't want to do anything twice. I don't even really want to do it once most of the time. But you know what I mean? Like, so that to me, it was just a shift of, do I want to be writing it on paper or do I want to be putting it in a computer? When I actually was able to focus on which system worked best for me, my paper didn't really work because like you said, data sheets, I would always have them outdated. I had the goals on there at the beginning of the year, but they'd have an IEP. I'd be, you know, scribbling over that. I'd forget sometimes to update sheets. Or some I'd data out sheets of didn't them. even have goals on it. Yeah. How in the world do you ever keep track I, no, of that many no students' goals? I always had to have my goals because I had no clue what anybody no was working clue. on. The memory of a squirrel. Right. And like you said, I never had them updated. Yeah. Nor did I ever find an effective system of, of keeping them all. I did individual folders for each mm-hmm. student for a while in a filing cabinet grouped by group. I did binders I was for had a, a while, binder. But I never kept them more organized or on top of it. I mean, a couple of weeks into the school year and like all of that stuff just kind of goes out the window. I found for me, so when I did finally make the switch to digital, and of course, you know, it was when we were um, testing out the the digital feature in our um, software and SLP toolkit. To me, what I loved about it is that it was then all organized there with score it for me. But also I used it for student going back to student engagement to get the students engaged in their data because we have the ability to take data in the app. And then um, there's a little icon you can click that shows you whatever data you took the week before. So we'd have a group of like four or tick students come in. The first thing we do is sit down and look at their score from last week and set a goal for that day for that same skill. Right. And so they were really excited. It increased that level of competition too, where like they'd be like, oh, you know, so-and-so did this. So they were aware of other people's goals. They were, you know, if they saw me mark like a minus versus a plus, right. and they're like, wait, wait, why'd you do that? And I'm like, well, that was on you, dude. You better right. like make that sound correct. So there were ways that you could incorporate it um, real easily. And that's a case really load. big thing in the schools right now is they want students taking their own data and understanding data. Well, I knew when my kids walked out of there, they knew exactly why they were in there. Exactly right. So no, I think that's a huge way to keep engagement. I think the other thing is, is you've got to have a plan. And this is again, you know, do I write really elaborate lesson plans? No, of course I don't. But hopefully I took some time to reflect on the session before and I have a plan of what it is I need to collect data on this next session. Even before that next group comes in, before that goes out the window. Like if you literally just type one sentence really quick while it's super fresh, and you have it all in your brain, exactly. that will be like give you so much relief for the yeah. next time. So I have a note in there that tells me, hey, we worked on, you know, I just always think of really simple examples here, but we worked on synonyms. They were really starting to make progress. Next session, right first thing, I want to go and um, collect data on these 10 synonyms. And so I know that going in ahead of time. And so that is one option is to take data at the very beginning of a session, especially that quantitative piece. You're probably still going to document qualitative data throughout the session. But if I just want to, I need that quick number because I want to check how they are doing since the last session um, after I did some instruction on a skill, mm-hmm. then I think the beginning of a session is a great time to do that. Collect that data and then put that kind of to the side and then get back into the therapy. And then maybe the only other information I'm having to jot down the rest of that session is just any of that qualitative data that's going to help guide treatment. 
And so I, I, it's a great way to do it right at the beginning. I also think it's really important for students to have a routine. Um, I, even my little kindergartners knew when they walked into my speech room to grab their own folders. They each had their own folders at the front. Um, and inside there might be an activity or something that they could get started on or looking at or doing while I'm taking the data with each student individually. And that only takes a few minutes. Right. And so that's a great way to be able to get the data that you need and then move on. But not the only way. No. So I think the other thing is um, going back to um, the digital data component is I think this is where we talk about like, you know, is what's easier. I, I've seen an entire thread recently on whether or not um, data digital data works for them and whether they prefer paper. And we used to always say this is very personal and that no, digital data is not for everyone. But I've had this change of thinking where I'm thinking, why isn't it? And it really should be for a lot of reasons. I think first and foremost, you might have already said this, I don't want to lose the data that I've taken. And so I would constantly scramble to find a piece of paper to jot down some notes, and then I'd lose it, which is (laughs) terrible. And then I would lose my mind. The other thing is, is I've seen some really awesome data sheets out there, but I have never seen any that give me a large enough box to be able to write really good qualitative data down. And I will have to say, I think writing is far more time-consuming than typing. Right. And so if I'm using my iPad with a keyboard or my laptop to take data, and I'm doing an engaging activity with that student, and then I'm able to just kind of turn and jot something down really quick, I'm going to be able to get far more details out that way than I ever will being able to handwrite yeah. it. Well, and you've used this even in a preschool setting. I was setting. just going to say, I used my iPad in the preschool setting without a keyboard. I just used the keyboard on the in the app. And I would chase them around the rooms and do it on the playground and do wherever I need to. And I'm telling you, it was so much quicker just to be able to jot that quick note down. And so in our digital feature in the app, there's huge places to be able to write down student data and group data. So in the group section, maybe I'm jotting down, um, you know, the activity that we're working on um, and any direction there. But in my student notes is where I'm going to write down any of that qualitative pieces. So I'm going to write down some utterances that they said really quickly, or I'm going to write down a note that all of a sudden, um, Sarah is really doing a better job. I'm seeing more engagement with her because, because Trent she walked up. Yeah, because she loves the the student that just walked up, and for the first time ever, this light bulb moment. I've never seen her talk so much, but she just really likes little Michael or whoever it is. And so that is a great piece of data because I'm going to use that maybe next time. Yeah, to get to group more, them together to group them together to get Sarah talking more. So I'm doing that on my iPad, and again, I've got this huge amount of space to be able to write those kinds of notes down much quicker to type. Um, do the kids will kind of say, like, what's that? And, of course, I think they think of iPads as something games, they play yeah, game on. Right, right. It is amazing. Even the tiniest little guys understand when I say, nope, it's mine. It's for me. It's to make notes. And, yes, I talk like that. I know my voice just got stupid. I was really dramatic in preschool. <laughs> um, so they got that really quickly and never, I never had issues with them, like, demanding time on the iPad. Right. They understood that concept of I was using it to take notes. Um, I think the other big things with digital data is that ability to have graphs. I don't know about, I, I don't know anyone who's ever taken paper data and plotted it on a graph 
regularly enough. But graphs are really important for seeing those trends and a very visual representation. And teams love graphs mm-hmm. because it just makes sense to everybody. They just look professional. Yeah. The other thing is, is I hated adding up all of those tally marks or, or pluses and minuses. So using a digital data pl- platform is going to allow that accuracy to be calculated for you so that you know that percentage and it, it will show you your averages um, over time. And then one of the things, again, Medicaid, um, this copy for billing button extracts all of that data that you have taken and you can just quickly go into that Medicaid billing software and paste it into there. That was the biggest aha for me yeah. when I was using SLP Toolkit. I was just working one day a week. We were working pretty much full-time with SLP Toolkit, but worked one day a week in a school. And I had 13 students on my caseload, and I saw them pretty much back-to-back throughout the school day. And at the end of the day, it took me five minutes to do my Medicaid billing because I just went click, paste, click, paste, click, paste, done. Yeah, so I think the keys there is is I definitely think it's worthwhile to try something out. We've got a data feature in SLP Toolkit. There are some other apps out there that will allow you to collect data in an app. Um, it's I think it's awesome having that data with you wherever you are. So if you do have to like move classrooms or you need to get some work done from home, you have all of that information with you. You don't have to carry around all these binders. Um, but there are I know we I know we're wrapping up in the next few minutes. There are a couple of other things to consider. Um, things like using literacy based therapy and curriculum based. Therapy. Therapy is always my go-tos for therapy um, and a great way to be able to collect data on a wide range of needs. So thinking about that when you're doing your lesson planning, there are times where I was using generic reinforcers. Mm-hmm. I looked at my notes and realized that it has been a while since I last took quantitative data. So I planned a session where we were going to play a game like Jenga and they're going to, I'm going to ask them a question. They're going to, you know, give me um, the information. They're going to earn a block. And so that I'm able to target each unique goal for every student in that group. And then to play the game, then they got to um, have more opportunities for me to um, ask them their specific questions. So that's okay to do once in a while too. That's why we play a lot of games in therapy. One, they're great for learning, but two, they're really great for taking data. So I'll build those things in. But I think the last thing we want to finish on is something you don't only need data from your daily notes, from those daily sessions. There is another option that's really great for data collection. Well, the data collection we've kind of been talking about this whole hour is really focused more on your session data for you know your day-to-day treatment with students. But there is also data you take for purposes of completing progress reports. And I think where you can get um, really tripped up is if you, going back to your goal writing, if you lock yourself into a goal like, you know, so-and-so will do this skill with this percentage of accuracy as measured by SLP session data over three consecutive therapy sessions, you really, really, really lock yourself into having to use that session data over three consecutive sessions and as the goal was written. So again, you know, kind of talked about like, maybe I don't want a conversational sample of R over three sessions. I want to focus those three sessions on how we're going to get there by the end of the year. So I love using criterion reference test and rubrics for purposes of progress reports. Today, we're not really going to get into it because that's a whole other topic. And we actually will be offering a session. Um, You can email us if you want more information um, at hello at slptoolkit.com. But um, that the idea of using criterion reference test and rubrics really make sure that A, you always have the data you need to complete a progress report. B, it frees you up to really make your session data more about that. What do I need to move the student forward towards the annual goal? And then not worry about, well, I need to zoom back and that whole, like, I can't see the forest for the trees. 
the ability to give a test or use a rubric lets you look at that goal in that big long-term annual context yeah it gives you a system it's super efficient and so you get a baseline like yes. a legit one a legit not and just a mm, i'm gonna go with 15 percent. Like no put like 13 sometimes i would do zero a lot i'd be like he can't do it at all which uh, it might have been true then you're not clever you need to put some like four percent where it looked like you actually it took like data I actually took baseline <laughs> So using a progress monitoring test, that was an awesome way to collect baseline data. And then all you're doing is is using that same progress monitoring test at the end of the grading period to get that um, that data that you're going to report on right. progress reports. And so the key here is that when you get to the end of the grading period and I just have to go and pull that test, administer it, and that's what I'm going to report on, I just think it makes your d- data way more consistent. It's way more efficient than me having to look at the whole last quarter's data. It takes the pressure off. Yeah, it takes major pressure off. When we always joke, it's, you know, these progress reports are always due at the right before you go on some sort of break. So whether it be fall break or winter break or spring break or summer break. And so a lot of people end up doing it at home. So we want to give you your breaks back but again that's exactly. a whole other that's a whole other topic, topic. And, whole, and we may be able to include a link to an upcoming course we have specifically about progress monitoring um but it was a lot to cover we could talk about data all day long it's our actual one of our favorite things um to do and talk about and so thanks for hanging out with us um and you've got some housekeeping yeah but before we get to that i want to let them know how to contact us i think okay. i said it already once um before that if you ever want to reach us by email hello at slptoolkit.com or follow us on social media uh, to treat <laughs> Instagram or Facebook is probably where we're most um, active Instagram and then maybe Facebook um, but just follow us at SLP Toolkit yep. and we'd love to hear your thoughts or if you have any questions so don't hesitate to reach out to us um, and then again our podcast is True Confessions with Lisa and Sarah and you can find that on any podcast platform that you stream but we really just wanted to say thank you for taking the time to listen to us and for participating in SLP Live. Remember that listening to this pod course does not automatically guarantee you ASHA CEUs. If you want to earn, um, you can earn up to 0.8 ASHA CEUs for this whole conference. So cool. There is a small $25 administration fee to process and submit your paperwork. And you can pay this administration fee and find out more details at the um, slp-live.com website. Once your purchase is made, then you'll get that email that um, will be sent to you containing the course evaluation, your feedback survey, and the CE paperwork. And the deadline to submit these materials is November 9th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So um, SLP Live would love to thank its sponsors for offering products, services, and discounts as giveaways to attendees at no charge. And you can see a list of all of these sponsors on that SLP Live website. And SLP Live would also like to thank us because we are presenting at no uh, and, and not charging any kind of speaking charge for our services. So um, can't get enough SCEUs? MedBridge Continuing Education is offered to give away a premium membership so you can enter to win by taking a screenshot of this course and sharing it on social media. Use the hashtag um, SLPLive2019 so the SLP Live crew can find you and they will announce the winner on November 11th um, at midnight Eastern Standard Time. So thanks for listening and we hope you enjoyed this first annual PodCon through SLP Live. Peace out. Bye-bye.